From the virtual newsroom of Impact Alpha, this is your Impact Briefing for Friday, September 11th. I'm Monique Aiken. Today, I'm joined by Melissa L. Bradley of 1863 Ventures to discuss her recent call to action for entrepreneurs. Hi, Melissa. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. And we'll hear from this week's agent of impact, Dave Kirkpatrick of SJF Ventures. But first, here's what you need to know from this week in impact investing. The Department of Labor continued its efforts to chill environmental, social, and governance, or ESG investing. A month after investors overwhelmingly opposed a proposal to restrict ESG in retirement plans, the DOL proposed a second rule that would stymie ESG investing and proxy voting. That's in contrast with another U.S. regulator that is warning of serious risks to the U.S. financial system from climate change. The surprise came from the Trump administration's Commodities Futures Trading Commission, a call for an economy-wide price on carbon. The only way, the CFTC says, to drive investments to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. California and much of the West Coast are under a pall of smoke, and devastating wildfires continue to burn a grim prelude to the annual Climate Week coming up. A number of climate deals made the news. German automaker Daimler issued a 1 billion euro green bond to speed its transition to clean cars. Credit Suisse partners with Rockefeller Asset Management and the nonprofit Ocean Foundation to help clients invest in pollution prevention, the low carbon transition, and ocean conservation. And LightSource closed $20 million to finance a big solar farm near Sacramento to power 2,600 homes. And UBS said it is making sustainable investments the preferred solution for all clients of the $2.6 trillion global wealth management business. The Swiss bank said major sustainable indexes have performed better than traditional ones. Impact Alpha also posted stories on equity in ed tech innovation, smart subsidies for African farmers, and the return of trade finance in emerging markets. Subscribers to The Brief got these stories in their inbox this week. You can read more at impactalpha.com. Hi, Melissa. Thank you so much for joining us here. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So I understand that voting may have saved your life. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? It did. Um, On this uh, somber day where we take the time to remember those lost... um, This time I was uh, in 2001, I was actually in New York City. Um, I was uh, had a meeting that was supposed to be uh, at the towers um, and I pushed it back from nine to nine thirty because I woke up realizing it was Election Day. So I had texted the other person said, oh, right, it's Election Day. Let me let me go vote, too. And so we moved our meeting 30 minutes. And uh, we got on, I got on the train and it was a local, I was living in Harlem. I went to 125th to vote, uh, voted, no problem. I was like, wow, this is the fastest thing ever. Um, and then I got back on the train and we're rolling along. And of course I'm on the local. So I'm like, this is going to take forever. And then all of a sudden we stopped and we were like, why did we stop? And luckily in New York city, you can use your cell phone on the subway. Uh, and we realized probably about 15 minutes in that that's when the towers are being attacked. And of wow. course, everybody on the train was like, oh, my God, what's happening? Um, but you're right. I mean, if I had not stopped, I probably would have been there because I'm the kind of person that gets there early. I had plans to uh-huh. grab a great breakfast. As you said, it's New York City. It's the Towers, lots of options. Um, and so every time I go to vote, I think of that, uh, obviously, as well as on 9-11. I was actually personally out of the country at the time. I was working for Citigroup. But in their mm-hmm. London office, I would have been at 390 Greenwich, just up the street, and would have seen things and 
had to walk across the bridge to Brooklyn, which is where I was living before I um, moved to London. But as it were, of course, I had a lot of colleagues who had friends and family who perished that day. And as we reflect on those losses and we think about really the current state of affairs in America today, we have another set of uh, tragic losses of life due to COVID and some other things. And we think about our, our health. And of course, we're grateful to have you back personally. And I know that you've been pretty open about your personal story. Um, Though it's not COVID related, we are all going through some things. That's (laughs) correct. And so I think you've had a time to reflect really on some of the urgent needs of our society and and your time convalescing. And so, you know, we, we noticed your interesting call to action for entrepreneurs and one of the reasons why we wanted to have a conversation with you here today. Could you tell us what prompted that a little bit and, and why you felt compelled to to write that piece? Yeah, you know, I think, as you mentioned, I, I have been out uh, since April because I, I suffered a stroke to, due to a heart condition that I was not aware of until January of this year. And, and during that time, for better or for worse, I've consumed a lot of television. <laughs> and, um, and sometimes it was probably for the worse. But I, I continue to watch, um, you know, policies be unraveled and new ones be implemented that clearly were having... Uh, a negative impact on certain communities and certain constituencies mm-hmm. in this country. And I think once COVID hit and I began to see what was manifesting out of the Fed and out of Treasury through the PPP program, um, it just further exacerbated uh, the, the the gaps that exist between and what I focus on is, is the gaps between black and brown entrepreneurs and, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and white entrepreneurs. And when I began to reach out via text or quick phone calls with entrepreneurs to see how they they were doing, I realized that, you know, black and brown entrepreneurs were suffering twofold. Uh, one, they were not able to access the loans that were coming down because of distribution right. channels and others. But, but two, they were also being impacted because those communities are most vulnerable to the disease. And so many of them lost family members, uh, unfortunately, and, and many of them still have family members who are ill. And so I realized that, you know, when I said to them, you know, how are you feeling? And they're like, we're just completely frustrated and, and we don't know what to do, that I realized we we have created this, I think, false gap between being an entrepreneur, a head down, running your business, but yet not paying attention to many of the policies that can impact our growth and our ability to expand, our ability to access the capital. So it, it seemed like after many conversations with entrepreneurs, the right time to to be um, supportive and, and kind of stress a sense of urgency for people to get involved, however they like. Uh, but I think there's too much at stake this year to, to not be involved yeah. in the process. Well, I fully agree with you on that point. And um, I've recently, I have recently been working on my own sort of initiative related. I love that, which is awesome. So, you know, I think that there is some real work that we need to do to ramp up civic engagement and for people to really understand the scale and scope of what's at stake. And I think perhaps um, it hasn't been articulated for some groups as well as it could be in order to inspire them to do something that goes beyond civic duty, because that has a limit, particularly for young people and some other folks. And so when you think about what is the business case in some ways for the engagement that you're asking entrepreneurs to take on, um, you mentioned there's an opportunity cost, which of course is always difficult for people, costs that are not incurred. So how did you, how do you articulate for them really what's at stake and how to think about them involving this as part of their 
business life and not separating it in the way that you described earlier. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think I, I called it their fiduciary duty, right? Because it is an entrepreneur and a board's responsibility to make sure that they are operating with the best of intentions to grow the business and be mindful of your internal and external environment. And I think the debacles, as I would say, with the PPP program were evidence that without engagement of, of the everyday small and medium-sized enterprises who are not using these few uh, existing big banks, but using CDFI and fintech platforms and alternative uh, lending sources, but they were locked out of the process. And so I, you know, uh -huh. I tried to position to them that, you know, the two questions that came up, I should say, when I talked to them was like, can I legally do this? And how do I find time? And I think on the opportunity cost side, it was you can't afford not to find time, right? Because if there had been uh, you know, possibly more engagement. I know some of it is underway, so I want to respect all efforts that are out there that are doing this. But I think if there had been some consistent voices to senators and congresspeople um, from entrepreneurs who are the ones typically with their heads down and aren't part of these processes, then hopefully there would have been greater insight in terms of what to lobby for. You know, it was clearly evident that once entrepreneurs got together and they began to expand who could distribute PPPs and they went from banks to CDFIs, somebody was paying attention. But unfortunately, there was also an opportunity cost of time before somebody yeah. ever realized I got to go just beyond banks. And then I think it was also important in the in the article to make sure that people understood it's not illegal. Um, I think, mm -hmm. you know, entrepreneurs of color already know they're at risk for so many other things. We're oftentimes fearful of taxes and all kinds of stuff that it was important to lay out that it is really part of your scan as a CEO to be mindful what is happening to the business and how can I protect it as well as how can I advocate for its continued existence. And this being, you know, an advocate uh, was a way to be able to get involved. So in your piece, you mentioned in a few ways to kind of re reconnect in some ways. And so certainly in the Black and Brown entrepreneur community, those networks are critical. Um, you cite some ways to get involved. Can you talk through that for us? And talk about the need for community, particularly at a time like this. Yeah, you know, I, I think um, you know what was important is that people understood that this is not an arduous task. Um, I did have a lot of people saying, "Look, I trust you. I'm happy to get involved, but like, how long is this going to take me?" And so I wanted to really make it, you know, as simple as possible because the one thing entrepreneurs don't have a lot of is time. Um, so you know, I thought it was important for for folks to understand that one, you know, there was an opportunity for them to do little things like just posting on social media. Uh, you know, there are tons of ways, thank goodness, technology. And in some ways, while we're battling COVID, it has forced people to think about more technological tools that allow communication to still exist. So you can email, you can text, you can tweet. And so try to position things that could take anywhere from five minutes um, to 15 minutes, right? So writing a letter, those kinds of things. Um, but then also recognizing that there are groups that are designed to help small businesses. And, and oftentimes I hear that they are rather homogenous in their membership. Um, and so it was a chance for us to begin to connect the dots and help entrepreneurs understand that they are part of many ecosystems. Oftentimes yeah. their participation is latent because people are so busy advocating for them, but the only way that they're going to get what they want is to actually be involved. Um, and then of course, the final thing, which, which I don't take lightly is I told them to vote. Um, but of course that's getting more and more complicated every day. Um, Cause it's kind of hard to tell somebody you're going to risk your life to vote, but the reality is it's, it's got to happen. And so if you can figure out the mail, in process, great. Otherwise, right. dare I say, plan ahead of time and, and show up to the polls to vote, because I think it's not just about a political party, but it's really about small businesses, as, as you know, better than most, are really the backbone of this country. And when you talk right. about the unemployment numbers, it's not going to be these large corporations 
that are going to hire them back. It's going to be up to small business owners to figure out where do I add the onesies and the twosies jobs as my business gets back on track. So um, that th- we tried to find meaningful ways, but that ways that, again, uh, we're not going to create opportunity costs, but we're, they were going to find easy and hopefully really integrate them into their ongoing process. Because the final thing I'll say is it's also important that people vote not just every four years, but every year, right? There's local elections happening every year. We have Senate and Congress every two years. So um, it's the idea just to kind of prompt them along and get them started. Well, thank you so much for the work that you have done on behalf of those black and brown entrepreneurs who have certainly benefited from your wisdom and expertise. And um, we're grateful that you are here back with us and, and continuing to fight the good fight. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Now let's meet this week's Agent of Impact, Dave Kirkpatrick, co-founder and managing director of SJF Ventures in Durham, North Carolina. The firm has been busy through the COVID crisis. This week, SJF backed TerraBase, a solar software company that is trying to drive the cost of solar even lower. It was SJF's fourth investment since the COVID shutdown. In July, SJF portfolio team Vital Farms IPO'd on the NASDAQ, becoming one of the first public benefit corporations and B Corps to go public. Here's Kirkpatrick, who has raised four funds totaling $260 million since 1999. I mean, even if you look at the Paradise Press release, we actually financed that company um, seven weeks ago, but we waited on the press until we hired the VP of software, until we did some enhancements to the digital platform, and then we put forth the press release We talked about the mission of achieving a penny per kilowatt hour uh, solar power, which would just, you know, displace fossil fuel around the world. And you know, they raise money to do that. So that, that kind of flips the script a little bit. It's not all about raising the money. It's how do we build a business delivering societal environmental value. So Kirkpatrick um, is a founder of the Impact Capital Manager Network, which has championed an impact alpha thesis, high impact and high returns. Its 52 members manage more than $11 billion in assets. And, and there's so many strategies now. I mean, there's FinTech, EdTech, there's food. There's, I mean, there's, there's so many problems. <laughs> We've got to address the whole climate tech thing, you know, evolution from clean tech. So it does feel like it's just continuing to, to burgeon. And he says impact investors need to think bigger. We know that impact and financial returns can be aligned and accelerate one another mutually. Then it's the question about how do we bend the curve? How do we have more beneficiaries for this? You know, if we could have gotten 5x financial, 5x impact, how can we get 10x impact with 5x um, financial? It involves policy. It involves field building. It involves diversity. It involves a lot of themes, but it's kind of going beyond the core impact alpha thesis. You, know. you can see Kirkpatrick and all of our agents of impact on Instagram at Impact Alpha. That's going to do it for your impact briefing this week. You can read all of these stories at impactalpha.com. Subscribers receive the brief and full access to Impact Alpha, including subscriber-only agent of impact calls. Go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe and use code briefing100 for $100 off. Thank you for listening. And thanks to Melissa Bradley and David Kirkpatrick, as well as our producer, Isaac Silk. I'm Monique Aiken, VP of Programs at Mission Investors Exchange. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please take a second to rate and review the show right now. It really helps us reach more listeners. And make sure you check back for next week's Impact Briefing.